Welcome to the midweek edition of Legal AF with your co-host. I'm Michael Popak. I'm Karen Friedman Agnifilo. And we're going to get right to it, Karen. We got a lot to talk about, and we're going to bring that brand of legal and political analysis that our fans and followers have come to expect and love. We get a lot of compliments, not only on the overall brand of Legal AF, but on this special midweek edition, people are sort of digging the chemistry between you and me that's different in its own way, its own its own thing than the Ben and Popak chemistry on the weekend. Um, you guys are adorable they, together, for sure. Well, thank you. We are adorable. I did say to him when he told me it was our one year anniversary, wow. I did respond with, what did you get me? <laughs> he had no, you know, typical, typical person in the relationship. He had no response. He got you a T-shirt. He got he got me a legal AF Popaki and T-shirt, but people are enjoying this one. There are still a few that are trying to sort things out. They still think I'm interviewing you. <laughs> and they're like, will you stop interrupting the guest? I'm like, I don't think you're kind of getting what we're doing here. We interrupt each other. It's called a called the conversation. Oh, it's called a conversation and a co-hosted show. So, <laughs> but that's like one out of a million and we're doing great otherwise. So on today's or tonight's midweek episode, we're going to dive down into three very interesting topics that we haven't covered before on the show. One of them is... Uh, we're going we're gonna to do a sort of update on the trial related to the attempt to kidnap Governor Whitmer of Michigan and where we are with that and the entrapment defense that the five or six defendants are trying to run in that courtroom. We're going to talk about something that, frankly, I don't in 52 episodes with Ben, we've never talked about, which is compassionate release under the 2018 First Step Act passed by Congress, a little known act that nobody was really paying attention to except for criminal justice nuts like you and by extension, like me, which gave the right to a federal court to let somebody out early for compassionate extenuating circumstances in a way that the Bureau of Prisons, frankly, would never do and never has done. But there is a problem related to that, related to the U.S. Sentencing Commission and how Department of Justice prosecutors, without having any checks and balances, have decided to mm, sort of corrupt what the compassionate release provision was supposed to be all about. We'll talk about that um, tonight as well. And then we're going to talk about an update on the Bannon, Steve Bannon trial. There's been sort of I don't I won't call it a bombshell, but there's been a development related to the preparation of the case and the development of the case by the prosecution team and some recent filings that will lead to an evidentiary hearing um, that will happen on uh, today on Wednesday. Um, and we'll report back on that after we get the full report of it. But there's some things that happened this week leading into it. But first, let's talk about some things that have developed in our own professional lives. Karen, how are you? I'm really good. I'm just kind of plugging away, doing my thing and, you know, being a lawyer and adjusting How do you like to being in private practice. I like it. Actually, I surprisingly am enjoying it a lot. It's really interesting. And it's I never realized before how hard it is, especially to represent somebody who is innocent of a crime or who's convicted, who's uh, accused of a crime. Their their life is literally in your hands. And that's a lot of pressure that yeah. and it, I didn't appreciate as a prosecutor, but I'm enjoying it. Yeah, it's the biggest difference between civil and criminal practice and criminal practice. Liberty 
is at stake and in a way that really brings home why we got into this. I think both of us got into this. I do a fair amount of criminal defense practice. Um, and and now and now you do. Remind me, were you were you ever were you ever in a private practice doing civil work before you went into sort of a career on the prosecutor side? No. So the only D- I, I was at the Manhattan DA's office since the minute I graduated uh, Georgetown Law School in 1992. But I did leave for a brief period of time in the middle there for a few years to go work for Mike Bloomberg when he was mayor of New York City. And I worked on criminal justice policy work. But other than that, I've I've been in the government prosecution law enforcement world for 30 years. This is my first foray into private practice, but I'm really enjoying it. It was a little bit of an adjustment at first, but I'm really enjoying it. Good. And we're really enjoying having you here and your lifelong prosecutorial lens that you can apply to the things that we talk about. So let's kick it off with something that prosecutors think about at the Department of Justice. I'll frame it and then we'll sort of get your your impression of it. The, um, in 2018, the Congress, really a bipartisan approach, passed a reform for criminal justice that allowed- Signed by which president? In 2018, it would have been President Trump. Yes. Yep. I have a theory about so, this, by the way. I have a theory about this whole thing. But yeah, go on. He, <laughs> yeah. He signed laws that he knew he one day would take take uh, advantage of. But <laughs> well, um, there's that. But I'll tell you my theory in a minute. Yeah. But go on. Well, let me frame the it. Table. For, let me yeah. frame it first, because everybody's like, like, what's Popak exactly. going to say What is next? it? What is it? Yeah. What is it? So in 2018, they pass um, a law that allows for the first time uh, uh, the, the federal courts, you, the uh, uh defendants who are serving time can petition, file a petition with a federal court and let a federal court judge decide whether extenuating circumstances, and it could be a myriad of things. It could be personal illness. It could be uh, rehabilitation. It could be a change in circumstances outside the prison in their family life or otherwise dying of cancer, you know, it could be a many, many, many things. The Bureau of Prisons had been sort of, let's just call a spade a spade, had been sort of heartless about those kind of applications. They were almost never granted. Now, since I think they said only, only 36 times in the history of, uh, of compassionate right. release did the Bureau of Prisons actually grant it. So almost not at all. So let's so let's put it against what's happened since 2018. 30, we'll take you at your word, 36 times in the history of the Bureau of Prisons, they've granted it. 7,000 people have applied since 2018 for compassionate release and 4,000 have been released on those grounds by the federal court. Why are we talking about this? Because the Department of Justice until recently, I mean, very recently, had, um, I don't want to call it a policy, but had allowed prosecutors in their plea agreements that they struck with defendants to have a provision in there that would actually limit the ability of the defendant to ever ask for compassionate release in the future, they would have to agree to that as part of the plea deal now, go to prison with this on their record. So in other words, if an extenuating circumstance that Congress had envisioned came up in this prisoner's life, the prosecutor would be able to wave around the plea agreement and say, well, that may be true, but you waived your right to ever seek this kind of extenuating circumstance. And and NPR broke the story 
and did a very good set of reporting on this, which made its way up, just to show you that reporting and First Amendment rights are important, made its way up to Merrick Garland and Lisa Monaco, the number two, the number two head of the entire Department of Justice. And they looked at the issue and said, you know what? That's not what Congress intended to allow our prosecutors to have unfettered discretion to stick this in plea agreements. And then the last thing that's very interesting is that it reminded me, I guess I knew it, but I had forgotten that even Biden in this area is not doing a right, the right thing, is he's allowing the Sentencing Commission, the U.S. Sentencing Commission, the very same commission that our, our next uh, associate uh, Supreme Court Justice, Katanji Brown Jackson, served on, it is now immobilized because it doesn't have a quorum. It has six or eight empty seats, even under Biden. And so normally the U.S. Sentencing Commission would make recommendations about how to implement the 2018 Act. But it, it's right now it's powerless because it doesn't have enough people sitting on it, which has allowed the prosecutors to sort of do their thing when they're negotiating pleas. So first question I have for you as a former prosecutor, did you have something similar to this in the New York state system or is this something that really just resides at the federal level. Oh, no, there, there's there's something in the New York state system. It's called a Clayton motion that it's an interest of justice, compassionate release sort of motion uh, that you can bring to a judge and request compassionate release. But it, similarly, it, it's a high burden. It's a high hurdle to to go over and it doesn't happen very often. But there are circumstances when it does. I mean, it, compassionate release uh, happens in all sorts of ways. It happens through prosecutorial discretion, through judicial discretion, through parole uh, discretion, but also through legal mechanisms like the compassionate release where you, you get reviewed by a judge and they look at certain factors to see, you know, you can imagine a scenario where where you are being prosecuted and serving time for a low level crime, but now you, you suddenly find out you have terminal cancer and this becomes that your your two year sentence is now a life sentence, and and that that can right. by some be viewed as, as cruel and inhumane, and and there's some people who need medical care who uh, can't get it in prison, and others who are so infirm that there's no way they could possibly recidivate, and you know they're they're either they've aged out or they're physically in in bad condition. Um, when you say recidivate, what do you mean? Commit more crimes to uh, to right. commit crimes again, and. Um, you know, it's it's tricky because on the one hand, you you want certainty and you want efficiency, and you don't want to constantly be going back and 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 having people their files reviewed. You also want to give that to to the victims of crime. You know, especially the really really heinous crimes. You don't want them sort of always looking over their shoulder and wondering, is this guy going to get out for some reason? That being said, and that that's one thing that in one one aspect of this, but it's also just cruel and inhumane when you see yeah. when you read the stories of the people who are granted or who apply for and grant uh, are granted compassionate release it's really sad and of course they many of them should be considered and and especially during covid where i think i think i read somewhere that covid spreads in a prison population like six times more than than on the outside and you've got some frail people in there and and i think that's where the judges were really using this and utilizing their discretion and releasing people I have one observation, then one follow-up question. The observation is, we, I want to make it clear, because sometimes people click on to our show and they're like, oh, leftists. They're like, <laughs> Ben and I did an entire thing about the Supreme Court's decision about the Boston Marathon, the Boston Marathon bomber. And it was a very straight down the middle, 
balls and strikes discussion of Clarence Thomas's decision and the perfect trial versus the, the fair trial under the, the Sixth Amendment and all of that. And, and that was it. I mean, I, you know, we have our own views about death penalty not being, you know, my own personal view of it being cruel and unusual punishment and shouldn't be used in a civilized society. And this person wrote in a review, um, oh, the leftists were defending the, the Boston Marathon bomber. All right. That, that's, that's not true. <laughs> and, and neither are we here um, undermining the um, dignity of the victims of the, uh, you know, they, these people are in prison because they committed a crime. They're not getting out because they're being found innocent. We're not talking about the Innocence Project. We're talking about mercy being shown for extenuating circumstances to be evaluated by a federal judge. I mean, nobody knows the the pain and suffering of victims better than KFA, better than you, because of the different units that you supervised and the sex crimes uh, prosecutions that you did. So we're not we're not. I want, I want people to be clear, Karen. You're you're not saying that there's no vic. This, this is victimless crime, and these people should be released for compassion, right? No, and it, so just to be clear, even even so, just putting in context this first step act. Um, and this this memo that just came out, this memo only I think only nine jurisdictions in this country were even utilizing these waivers. So the vast majority of, of Department of Justice prosecutors weren't using this, but there's certain states that did. Uh, but it, it called for sort of a lack of uniformity. And, you know, if you you have one get arrested in one state, you have an opportunity for compassionate release. But in another same crime in a different state, you don't. And so they're trying to bring fairness here. And, and they carved out there's a carve out here. And they said this should, there, that you can still do it in rare circumstances like a terrorist case or a murder case, things like that. So they're really not they, they even the Department of Justice is recognizing that there are certain cases where it really the, it really is not appropriate to be released ever. And that has been carved out of this. That, that brings me to my question as and wearing your prosecutor's hat, former prosecutor's hat for a moment. Why even limited exceptions? Why not, if you're going to effectuate what Congress intended, and you read through the legislative history and you see the act, why not leave it to the discretion of the federal judge to decide whether on, on balance, weighing all of the elements, weighing, weighing it all, the extenuating circumstances, the crime, the, the chance of recidivism, the chance of rehabilitation, whatever it's going to be, why not do that? Why is the prosecutor, I mean, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Why are they still allowed, even the least, under the Lisa Monaco directive, to put their fat finger on the scale and in negotiating a plea, take out that which Congress has allowed? Why is that even appropriate? So I'll put on my prosecutor's hat, um, but I, I reject the fact that I have a fat finger, but I will put on my prosecutor's hat. <laughs> Let me see. I may. <laughs> no. um, I think I think so. So just again, in context, you know, unlike law and order, it, law and order makes it seem like uh, every big case goes to trial. But in the real world, only um, 
only, I think, two or three percent of all cases go to trial and and 97 percent or some huge number like that of of cases of criminal cases uh, are resolved ahead of time in a plea bargain. And a plea bargain is just that it's a bargain. Usually, usually you get something for pleading guilty. And the reason you get something for pleading guilty and the get something is usually some sort of lesser negotiated either something. And the reason you do that is for several reasons. One is to spare the victims so they don't have to go through the trauma of telling their story at trial and then getting cross-examined. And and there's always a risk at trial. You know, you never know if you're going to, if you'll, if you'll win or not. And so to spare everybody of kind of the, the, problem and the the pain of of a trial, you enter into a plea bargain and a negotiation. Now, at trial, don't forget all of the ugly facts would come out, you know, all the horrible things that you did would come out and the judge would hear it. And so you would think that at sentencing, the judge would take into consideration the appropriate, you know, sort of what happened and the heinousness of the crime. Here, you, you can imagine a scenario where you don't get that kind of information in a plea bargain and a judge doesn't get that kind of information. So they might not realize um, how serious and severe this is and what it would mean to a victim. And the defendant is usually getting something. So I think in exchange for that and to make sure to that the victim will have a sense of security and um, to make sure that the the judge um, doesn't abuse their discretion from a prosecutor's perspective. I think that's why they they allowed it to go in for the rare cases like, you know, like imagine if there was a nine, if there was a trial on the 9-11, you know, the the 9-11 terrorist attack or the Timothy McVeigh, Oklahoma City case. Or, you know, you can imagine certain cases where the facts are so egregious that if the person was going to plead guilty that you'd say, you know what? I don't think this or or a pedophile, you know, a a serial pedophile who, you know, has I mean, I could just there's so many different scenarios that you can imagine where you'd say, you know what, society at large should know that this person will never get out no matter what. And that that's that's I I like that perspective. I mean, I I still think that we we need to wait to see what the sentencing commission is going to do if it ever gets fully constituted because they're going to have to. Do you know who that did you see who the head of the sentencing commission is? It's one of the justices. Is it it's no, who? Justice Breyer? And you know who Justice Breyer is? Uh, it's the, the brother of Stephen yes. Breyer. Yes. Yeah. And it's just yeah. funny because Katanji Brown Jackson was sitting on the sentencing commission with the yeah. brother of the justice that she's uh, replacing anyway. It's and, just a very and, small and the, world. And that she clerked for. She clerked yes, for Steve, exactly. Stephen Breyer on the Supreme exactly. Court. Yeah, so we'll follow this. I think it's I think it's interesting. And plus, it allows you to sort of flex your chops of, of being a prosecutor. So I really liked the story when we curated hey, it for today. Can I tell yeah. you my theory of the First Step Act, by the way, signed by oh, yeah, 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 Donald that's J. Right. Trump? Yeah, why did so, Trump sign such a criminal justice reform act? He did a lot of criminal justice reform, surprisingly, for someone on the right. And my theory is because I'm, I'm cynical, is um, I don't know if it's widely known or if people remember, but Jared Kushner's father uh, went, to prison. <laughs> went to prison. And do you know who right. prose- and you know who prosecuted him? Mm. Chris Christie. Are, is, are, are, 
Yes, Chris, I know, which, Christie. Which, which he I, always, he never, he never. He never forgave him. Forg- which is he why never forgave he, Chris Christie. Which is why right. Chris Christie was never anything in the Trump administration. Right. And But I think that all of the criminal justice reform was very much pushed by Jared Kushner and his experience with the justice system through his father. I, I think you are 1000% correct because Kushner, I think reporting has been big-footed, and stopped Christie, Trump would have done it. Trump would have made Chris Christie the um, attorney general, if not after sessions, instead of Barr or even before sessions. And the reporting has been exactly what you said, that Kushner and therefore Ivanka were like, absolutely not. But it's interesting, the point you make about criminal justice reform, because poor Jared Kushner, you know, the poor little rich boy, whose father went to prison for five years because you know, he committed fraud. Um, you know, yes, I could see him being, you know, holding the holding the lamp out there for to make sure criminal justice reform happens on their watch. And now one of the little known facts is that um, Chuck Schumer, with the support of Biden and others, has been able to pass even more criminal justice reform. People think, oh, it's stalemate. Nobody will. There's not, nothing being passed to do nothing. Congress. That's not true. And even though it's 50 50 with with Kamala Harris in the, in the tie break vote, they are passing a lot of laws on criminal justice that you including. I can't even believe this wasn't on the books. And we'll talk about it another time. An anti lynching statute. How is that not on the books? you know, in this country. But we now have an anti-lynching law, thank God, um, that, that you can point to if somebody tries to li- if somebody tries to lynch or you are or somebody, you know, your family is a victim of lynching. We'll talk about that at another time. But yes, I think that's a fascinating observation that I haven't heard made on other podcasts. So thanks for doing it. Let's move on because everybody expects us to be both um, really, really interesting, but also really efficient with our time. So I'm going to move on to Steve Bannon, because I think that's interesting. So Steve Bannon, as everyone knows, is being prosecuted by the government, by the Department of Justice for contempt of Congress, because he has refused to comply with the subpoena of the Jan 6 committee to turn over whatever he has that relates to the big lie or the insurrection or anything in between. And, um, and so you know, having having had uh, letter requests, having had subpoenas that he's completely ignored, it's now uh, the referral was made to the Department of Justice, to the U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia at the time, and they made the prosecutorial decision to bring a case in, I think, November or December against Bannon. The judge is Judge Nichols, um, which we'll talk about at another time, who has been okay. He's a Trump appointee. He did recently dismiss a obstruction charge against one of the defendants, arguing that obstruction was not a proper charge to bring based on the legislative history of that particular charge. Why does that matter? Because like 170 out of the 700 insurrectionist defendants are charged with it because it's it leads to one of the highest penalties of up to 20 years in prison if you obstructed the government and its process, in in this case, the electoral count. So he's one of the outlier judges that has dismissed obstruction. Guy Reffitt, who you and I talked about last week, not only was charged with obstruction, he was convicted of obstruction by a jury of his peers. So we got that going on. But Nichols um, is, um, you know, he's got a trial that he wants to do in the summer. 
the government is being put to its proof and there's been a development in an attempt to subpoena some records. So why don't you tell everybody what's going on and and where you, and where you think it's going to come out in terms of this um, tempest about the attempt to subpoena the records of the lawyer for, for Bannon as the government tries to prove its case. I mean, I think this one's much ado about nothing. I, I think, you know, the Trump playbook and all of his accolade, you know, all of those cronies, they, it's like if you scream something and you say it loud enough and you call it with hyperbole and et cetera, somehow it's outrageous and it's terrible. And and to me, this falls into that sort of in, into that sort of uh, camp. What is it? What is it he complaining about? He's so what he's saying is that so the government is trying to prove their case. The, the prosecutors are trying to prove their case against Steve Bannon, right? And one of the things they have to prove in their uh, contempt prosecution is that he um, that he knew about that he was had knowledge that he was supposed to appear before Congress, and his lawyer uh, Robert Costello was acting as the intermediary between the defendant Steve Bannon and Congress. And so, if Congress subpoenaed Steve Bannon, he'd send the, they'd send the subpoena to Costello, and Costello would communicate with his client, and his client did not show up or refused to show up. So, you know, the prosecution still has to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt, and they have to prove that he was told and that he knew. So in order to do that, they were looking for this kind of connection to show, whether it's through an email or a phone call, that the lawyer contacted Steve Bannon during this particular window of time when the subpoena was issued and he didn't show up. Now, in other words, it wasn't just that they have the government has, of course, the email or whatever transmitted the subpoena from the Gen 6 committee to Costello, but they need that next link of Costello to his client. Right. Exactly. That's exactly mm -hmm. right. So they so the it's complicated because normally the government doesn't subpoena or or ever do search warrants or subpoenas for records of an attorney because you then you can uh, you you dangerously enter into the the territory of attorney client privilege and um, you know there's one exception which is the crime fraud exception but that doesn't really apply here what the government was was doing though is not looking for communications between the attorney and the client they were looking for content so not the content of any calls or the contents of any emails just the records that show you know like a telephone record that would show on this date a call was placed from this phone to that's um, Mr. Costello to Mr. Bannon, and it lasted 25 minutes. You know, one would argue, and it's between the period of when the subpoena was issued. One would argue that was the phone call where he explained the subpoena. That that sort of link. The problem is, is in order to get that information, um, you know, the government can't just like magically look in, into some database or snap their fingers and get this information. So they have to subpoena records and sometimes even do search warrants for records, depending on the, the type of information they're looking for. And all of that's located in something called the Stored Communications Act, which is a uh, federal statute that explains exactly what you have to do and, and in order to get these records. And so the first step is to subpoena subscriber information. And that's what routinely prosecutors do. Um, they, they want to um, subpoena the subscriber information for Mr. Costello's cell phone and cell phone records and emails. He, but he's the subscriber. He's the subscriber in that. Correct. Okay. Correct. The person but is they, the subscriber and they're going to the carrier. 
Correct. to get that information. Exactly. Right. And so once they right. get the subscriber information and then they can determine which ones belong to him as opposed to somebody else, that's when they do a search warrant for the information within that they're looking for. But the first step is to try to identify what are his emails and what are his phone numbers? You know, you don't always have all that information, right? He could have more than one email or more than one phone number. So he's, they're looking for information for that. And so they, you do a little homework and you look in certain law enforcement databases and certain open source information, and you gather as much information as you can. You know, he's approximately this age and he lives in this location. And I see an address in this location to this person. I mean, trust me, if someone were to do look for subscriber information and they found someone with an email for Karen Friedman Agnifilo, I can assure you that is me. I'm probably the only person in the country with that name, but Robert Costello is a fairly common name, unlike that. So they have to do especially, a little- Especially, especially the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. So they have to do a little more sort of digging to get the information and try to figure out if they get the right person. So this was very routine. And so they did. They get the information. They get the information back from, I think, Google, Yahoo, and Comcast, I believe it was. And they quickly determined that two of the three aren't him. You know, one's too young, one's too old, one lives in a wrong, you know, whatever. For whatever they did, they quickly learned it's not them. So they put it aside, as every law enforcement person would do when you do this exact kind of uh, investigation. And they see one and, and, and it looks like him. It's the right age. It's the right location. So they then go the next step from a subpoena, which is something that you get to do from your own computer if you're a prosecutor. You don't have to go to a judge to a search warrant where you do go to a judge and you swear before you, you have sworn information that you do go before a judge and you ask the judge to order a search warrant for the content for certain content, you know, communications that requires that requires a search warrant. Now, in this particular instance, uh, in the search warrant, by the way, you need probable cause and you have to be very particular. So you can't just you have to be careful. I mean, it's not you have to make a showing and you're swearing under oath that this is accurate. But, you know, human beings make mistakes. And in this particular case, somebody made a mistake. And when the mistake they made was they didn't realize that, you know, the, the middle initial and the middle name was different than the lawyer, um, the actual lawyer's middle name. Had they known that or noticed that, they would have tossed that one to the side too and realized that's not his email address. So because there was what some might argue a mistake or carelessness or an oversight. That's where the lawyers and Steve Bannon are up in arms, their hairs on fire, you know, calling, making all kinds of accusations of irregularities and the, you know, whatever. They're, they're just saying that this is, you know, just the, such a, I, I don't even know what they're saying, but it's just well, crazy. Well, well, let me, well, let me, let me, let me, let me round it out. Let me round the circle here or the square. They're claiming that, because the government, as you just accurately described, you know, in their catch and release of numbers, trying to figure out which one is which one's the right Costello. I, you know, you know what I'm about to do, right? Who's on first? Yes, right? exactly. Abbott it. and Costello. I, ha I had to do Abbott and Costello. Anyway, <laughs> in doing that, Bannon is arguing Oh my God, they've made a Brady violation, oh which is, yeah. all right, which is that we've talked about this, I think, in the last episode or the episode before that. The defense has the right under, under case law called Brady to get exculpatory or anything that may prove guilt or innocence at the time of trial. The prosecution has to turn it over and it's called Brady material. They're saying, aha, 
we should now understand and learn, and it should be discovered, disclosed to us, all of the deliberative and investigative process that the prosecutors are using against my client because they effed up the initial for my lawyer in their filing. Aha. And they cite a couple of Supreme Court cases, which frankly, I read them and I also read the government's response to this. And I was like, these cases have absolutely nothing to do with nothing, what happened yeah, here. And, and the, the one case they cited, for instance, which you're probably very aware of, is a case in which a the underlying what appears to be inculpatory, you know, that something that's going to go to guilt be, when there is other information provided that the government withheld, it would undermine the power, the credibility, the relevancy of that piece of evidence going against the defendant. Well, of course, that's Brady material because the government can't just say, oh, I have this really bad fact against you and not also disclose all the other facts that undermine that fact that the defense can use at trial. That is so obviously Brady, it's it's hard to believe they had to have a, a case about that, but they did and it's a reported decision. So they're going, aha, that's the case that will now allow us to peer into the 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 heart and soul of the prosecution about what they're doing here because they got the they got the guy's um, middle initial wrong. I mean, there's going to be that. Would you believe there's going to be an evidentiary hearing? About I know. This I can't today, believe it. Another today? hearing. I yeah. know. Yeah. So, so so there's one other development in this case. You know, there's yeah, one so other. Hear about it. Yeah. There's one other wrinkle. So the wrinkle is there's. Um, a gag order, which means the judge has ordered the parties that they're not allowed to talk about this case to anyone. And they're not allowed to publicly disclose any information except what you have to for the case. So if you have to put facts about the case in a, in a filing that you're going to file with the court or which is obviously public information, or if you want to speak about it in court, which is also public and people will hear about it, that you're allowed to do, but you're not allowed to talk about it to the press. So so Bannon files this motion and I think an hour or two hours or I think one hour before they file before the motion is filed and therefore publicly available, the Daily Beast, which is a tabloid, uh, comes out with an article basically with all sorts of detailed information that I would guess could only come from. Bannon, but who knows? I'm, I'm purely speculating, but it seems like either that or the or the prosecution leaked, which I, I think I doubt they would make. I doubt they would do it A and B. I doubt they would make such an issue at it if they were the source of the leak. So but but either way. So I, I think it came from Bannon's camp. And so it was before it was filed. And the Daily Beast updated their their article at nine o'clock at night to show that, uh, you know, that's when the article came out. But there's something called a Wayback Machine that. Tell, tell, tell our followers, because you, you, we use this in our practice and tell them what the Wayback Machine is. The Wayback Machine actually keeps keeps tabs of and records of when things appear on the Internet. And so there's actually a timestamp on the way back machine for when the Daily Beast article came out, which was like six o'clock, which was an hour before they filed their motion. So it wasn't nine o'clock where it was updated later. So there's also that issue about the leak and who leaked it. And they could be in contempt of court for that. I mean, it's just there's so much stuff going and, on in this and case. And plus, in related to what you just said, Bannon in his own filing listed the personal details of all the other right. 
Robert Costellos that were right. not the right Robert Costello, totally abusing their right to privacy in the filing where he's talking about the right to privacy. I mean, Bannon, look, Bannon just sees this as a joke. He feels he's never going to go to prison, that he's going to use it for fodder for his uh, podcast and for whatever else he does. And if he goes to prison for a year, it'll be a badge of honor and he'll come out and write a book and do everything. It's a total joke to this to these people. Nichols needs to sort of get control of his courtroom here, I think, a little bit more. And I think he should I think at the evidentiary hearing or at some point, he should throw the book at Bannon for 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 what he's done so far in abusing the um the protective order and also in 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 outing people that that are not involved in this case in his filing. I think it's wrong. What but I don't we'll, understand we'll what I don't understand about this case just before we move on just really quick is he's claiming executive privilege as to why he doesn't have to turn it over but he left the Trump administration in 2017 and the Jan 6 thing happened years after he the insurrection yeah. happened years after he left so, so how, how could he claim executive how is the judge even so, allowing that as a, a bad faith it's a bad faith invocation of executive privilege that should not defeat criminal intent or mens rea. So you and I, we we've talked, we Ben and I have talked about it in our in our podcast, but you and I will follow this because this is rapidly coming to an end, this this period, this phase in the Bannon prosecution. And we will get to a trial because there I don't think there'll be a plea agreement, compassionate release or not. I don't think there's going to be a plea agreement in this case. So let's move on to our last it's been a few minutes because we've you and I did talk about it, I think, in one of our very first yes, we did. midweek midweek editions. But now the trial has started of the five or six people who are being prosecuted for the attempted, the conspiracy to kidnap a a governor of the United States because they disagreed with her COVID policies. Isn't that quaint after watching the Jan 6 insurrection? They decided that they wanted to kidnap and hogtie her, blow up a bridge on the way to her cabin and kidnap and torture a governor, female governor. They, they, in this were, gonna case. Tr- they were gonna put her on trial. Who- oh yeah, they were gonna just, yeah. Because they didn't like her COVID policies. Now, one right. of them, literally, and I'm not making this up, was so was so busted. He was living under a trap door of an of an elect of a, a vacuum. I can't make this stuff up. He was living in a studio apartment, if that's the right word for it, under a trap door in a vacuum repair shop. Like if you saw this on Pulp Fiction, you'd be like, that's so why did they make that character live in that condition? This is where the guy was living. And it's and like Saddam the, Hussein, you know. Yeah, they pulled him out of a, a trap door underneath a vacuum shop. So all of these losers who decided to get together over beers and pot and with a FBI informant or two involved, decided that they were going to do this. And actually, it did. It wasn't just like, you know, the within the marijuana haze of sitting around a campfire about what they'd like to do if they ever got the chance. They actually bought ammunition. They bought explosives. They practiced blowing up things. I mean, you know, this was bad. This was bad stuff. So the you and I talked before the trial started about the fact that we knew that the defense was going to try an entrapment defense to claim that they were innocent, except the government and all of its FBI informants, two of which have pled guilty um, and are testifying against them, um, ensnared them and tempted them in a way that's improper. And therefore, they should be let off the hook as a complete defense to the prosecution. 
And now you've had a chance as a prosecutor, former prosecutor, Karen, to hear a little bit of these openings and see as it's been reported in the media. What do you think about the entrapment defense? So, first of all, it's the only defense they have. I mean, so, right. you know, that they, they did everything else. <laughs> exactly. Right? So they have to go with what they have. Um, but so entrapment requires two, two, you know, sort of two things. You you have to prove that you were induced to do something, which is more than just merely asking. You know, you can't just ask someone. You have to, like, convince them. You know, that's what inducing is, is sort of to persuade or convince. And so you have to prove that you were induced. But you also have to you have to some you have to prove that you did not have a predisposition towards this type of activity. The inducement has a little bit of legs here because, you know, at least a little bit, you know, it's not they're going to get make a little bit of headway there because, first of all, you had multiple FBI informants, two of which I think were they're not going to call because they have uh, they're problematic in some way. Um, they also had undercovers and there's, there's all sorts of issues with some of the witnesses here, but also that their main informant is this guy, Dan, they're calling Dan and everybody's saying Dan was the leader. And if Dan was the leader and he was the one who was sort of, you know, convincing people to do this and leading them to do it, they might, some of them might have an argument that, you know, they were, they were somewhat induced, but the predisposition, I think is almost going to be impossible to get to get past for them. I mean, as you said, they were blowing things up. They were buying ammunition. Um, you know, these guys, you know, they're trying to uh, buy some of the ammunition, Karen, from one of the FBI. Yeah, yeah. But, or but, but the defense, yeah, but the defense attorney is saying, come on, it was a, it was an impossible, it was a factual impossibility. These guys were dirt poor. They were, you know, they didn't have any money to do any of this stuff. They were wasted. Well, but, but, but yeah, right, right. And I know you're not arguing on their behalf. You're giving the story. But, yeah. But I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I must have missed it when Timothy McVeigh was a wealthy man when he decided to take fertilizer and blow up, you know, the, yeah. the Murrah but, Federal but the, Center. The defense attorneys are going with all kinds of defenses here. It's everything from this was just tough talk to the informants were the ones running the show to, you know, it was literally a pipe dream because they're they high were, on pot, right? They were high totally, on, high on pot. totally, you know, stoned. By the way, they picked an all white jury, which I found I interesting. Was, you know, this is why you and I are it's becoming like a well-worn we think pair alike. Of blue, a pair of blue jeans. Cause I was going to say to you, remember that episode we did when we talked about picking a jury yeah. and how they're not supposed to do it on racial grounds. How'd they get 12 white exactly. and uh, jurors and six alternates, 18 people in Michigan. They can't they, all yeah. be white. Well, because these are, these are, these are the worst. So I, my, I, my hobby, if, if you want to call it is I like to binge watch television shows. And I happen to be currently <laughs> binge watching one called true detective with like Matthew McConaughey oh, and yeah. Woody Harrelson. Yeah. Anyway, it's they have infiltrated this white supremacist, just the worst possible. I, 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 you know, I, I've seen it before, but they did such a good job at portraying how horrific, terrifying, scary, violent and awful these people are. And the things, the tattoos they have, the the Nazi symbolism. I mean, you got they had to pick an all white jury because they're hoping that they had but, but, to but wait. But, but wait, I agree. But how do you do that without violating without violating the you the, Batson, the, Supreme, yeah. the Batson and the Supreme yeah. Court rulings that say you can't 
You can't challenge and remove based on race. Let me give an example. Michigan. Dearborn, Michigan has one of the highest concentrations of Muslim Americans, I think, anywhere in the United States. There's not one Muslim. Well, maybe maybe they haven't reported. Maybe maybe some of the white people are Muslim. I don't know. Um, I'll, but I'll tell you how you do it. I'll tell you how you do how it. Do you, okay? How do you do it? You're a defense attorney. You have a, yeah. a panel of jury of jurors that you're questioning. Like, say there's 30 of them. Right. And you're asking questions or you're having the judge ask questions. And let's say of the 30, say 24 of them are white and six of them are non-white or let's say 20 are okay. white and 10 are non-white. Sure. I would focus all my questions on the 10 non-white ones. And I would ask questions that would get them to say things that I can articulate like for example, Mr. Person of Color, can you be fair to someone who has a swastika on his forehead? No. You know, can you, of course not. And so <laughs> right. suddenly now you have an articulable reason to challenge that person that oh, is not well, based on your race. Honor. Number it's not six. Based on By the way, how am I yeah. doing? How am I doing at being a defense attorney? <laughs> I'm trying really hard. To- <laughs> you know what? I, you know what I love about this show? I don't care if, if our followers and listeners do. I know I love it because I get this sort of and, I, and I'm a geek for this, this sort of inside baseball, you know, how to get rid of jurors, you know, the way the prosecutors think that I've listened to these other podcasts that are our supposed competitors. Nobody's doing what we're doing. Nobody's talking about trials in an entertaining and informative way and bringing that angle that, that's out there. I defy anyone to find another podcast where that comment about, hello, Mr. Person of Color, <laughs> tell us more about how you feel about Nazis. That's yeah. not being said on any other show. And that's why people tune in for us. But we're going to follow the Whitmer trial. We're going to get more KFA observations. People are going to understand that we're co-hosting the show and I'm not interviewing KFA at some point in the process. And I'm going to look forward to next Wednesday. What about you? Absolutely. One of these days, by the way, we, we should have a guest on that we do interview. I think there's two things you've brought up that I like uh, as, a, as an option. One is guests. And we, we've talked about it. I mean, ben and, ben and I don't do it because he doesn't get up early enough or, or no, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's hard enough for us to do the show without guests, let alone adding a variable there. But but you have access, as we've talked about offline, to really interesting people from the world, primarily in the criminal justice world, but other interesting people. And some people you and I share as friends that that would be really, I think would be really interesting. And we would try to do that. And the second thing that you and I have talked about is doing doing this live, like instead of being in two Zoom boxes and having Adam Salton, shout out to Adam Salton, our college, our college student uh, producer, uh, post production person extraordinaire, who's having finals cut. right now and wants us to hurry yeah, up. <laughs> I know who like has to cut this and take you know my reaction shot and your reaction shot and make it work. Why don't we just get in a room like two hosts, one mic? Here we go. We've talked about it. I got, you know, the brothers are like, well, it's hard with the sound and the microphones and we don't really have a studio. So, but I think before this year is up, maybe before the summer is up, I'm going to find a way technologically to put you and me in the same room and do this across one microphone. Joe Rogan can't be the only one that's able to have three people on one podcast at the same time on a video. The progressive Democrats got to be able to do it too. So you and I Absolutely. are going to try that. But but we have reached the end of another amazing edge of your seat episode of the midweek edition of Legal AF with KFA and Popak. 
And we'll see you next week. Shout out to the Midas Mighty and the Legal AFers. And remember to tune in for Ben Micellis and Michael Popak, me, as we do the Saturday wrap-up edition where we cover seven to 10 things that have happened that some of which you may know about, but a lot of which you don't. Saturday's we'll a marathon. It's so impressive it what is. you guys do. It really, really is. It's a and stamina also, marathon. It, re- I feel, it really is. I am like I love exhausted it. I know. By, the time I, it, by the time it ends. I love it. Oh, my my yeah. earbud just fell out. <laughs> that's all right. Well, that, well, listen, that's that's live live podcasting, ladies and gentlemen. By the way, and, encur- and- we should encourage people to send in questions for us so we can do mailbag again. Yeah, we're we're gonna do mailbag. I promise. That's a very good idea. We're gonna do mailbag again next week because that was a nice new feature of the midweek edition. And I want to remind people that that we do this live. We have a live chat. We've had on Saturdays, we've had 2,000 or 3,000 people join. We've had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds join on the Wednesday edition. And Karen, it's like a crossover. Karen comes on, KFA comes on on our weekend edition and does live chatting with our our followers and listeners there too. So if you can't get enough of KFA on the Wednesday edition, tune in on Saturday because she's chatting right along with Ben and me. You know, All the right, followers everybody. are so interesting and so nice. So I really enjoy yes. it. I enjoy it much more than I like. It's really the fuel yeah. that keeps you going. There's the, the people yeah. who encourage you and send you, whether it's on Twitter or the live chat. For me, it's just it's the fuel that keeps me going and, yeah. and I really the, enjoy it. The the Facebook crowd is a little bit interesting, but the Twitter crowd is yeah. completely supportive of, of, of everything that we're doing, which we appreciate. So we're signing off for the midweek edition of Legal AF. I'm Michael Popak. And I'm Karen, Ag- Karen Friedman Agnifilo. All right. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>